Uh, during lockdown, one of the number one activities that occurred was what? Netflix, right? But not just Netflix. Netflix, Stan, Paramount Plus. That's what I'm on these days. That's all I'm on these days. I'll tell you the truth. I've watched, there's 40 seasons of Survivor US, right? 40 seasons. I'm just about to finish season six. I'm, I'm clocking off around one a week, which is a pretty good effort. Um, one of the big things that people did do during lockdown was they clocked off a lot of movies. Now, I'm personally, I'm not a massive movie fan. Um, going to the cinemas, um, I used to, when I was dating my wife, I used to suggest to her, let's go to the cinemas and watch a movie. Um, and she later worked out why. It's because you can go on a date but not really have to be there. It's fantastic. You just close your eyes and go to sleep and watch the movie. Um, but a lot of my friends are like, man, I smashed through like 10 movies this week. You know, like there, there isn't a movie on Netflix that I haven't watched, you know. I watched Harry Potter four, four times over lockdown. You know, like movies were a big part of, of lockdown. If you think about what the movie is, right, if you think about, if you got a very generic idea of what the movies are all about, usually there's a, a bad guy and a good guy, right? And then usually the bad guy looks like they're going to be winning, you know, they're, they're sort of got the upper hand throughout the whole movie and then towards the end, boom, the good guy sort of comes out of nowhere and ends up winning, right? Now, I love that. I'm a sucker for happy endings, you know. Um, I love it when there's that last little twist and then the good guy wins at the end and you all feel happy, you all feel sort of warm and fuzzy inside. But I got friends that don't, right? I got friends that are a little bit more like, that's not real. Like, that's not really how it would work, right? Because a lot of the time, right, the, the bad guys are actually more powerful. Right? A lot of the time, the bad guys are actually smarter than the good guy. And then through some twist or some loophole, the, the, the good guy kind of comes out and then wins in the end. And so some of my friends, they don't like that because they think that's uh, illogical. They're like, that shouldn't happen. The, the, the bad guy is stronger, obviously. The bad guy is smarter. They should have won. Right? And I have to continue to tell my friends, guys, it's just a movie. It's not real life. But they can't accept that, right? Now, we're in Isaiah 36 and 37. And in one sense, Isaiah 36 and 7 is one little story within Isaiah. And it's going to talk about a battle. And in one sense, you can actually imagine it like a movie. And that's why I've introduced movie two. Um, Isaiah 36, 1, it sets the scene in the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Now, that's the setting the scene, right? So you've got two nations. You've got Judah, which is God's people, and the king of Judah, King Hezekiah. Now, for the sake of being Australian, we're just going to call him King Hezi, okay? So that's King Hezi, right? He's the king of God's people. And then you've got the neighboring enemy country, Assyria, and the king of Assyria is a guy named Senna Cherub. Now, that's a really long name. So we're just going to call him King Rib, right? 
or King Ribi, whatever you want, right? And the scene is set where um, King Ribi and the Assyrians have invaded Judah and have taken over the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Right, So Judah is in a position where they don't have much left. Most of their people have been captured. All their cities have been captured. And it's like they've got one little bit left. And what happens is after King Ribi, the enemy king, comes in and takes over, he sends a convoy of messengers to send a message to the, 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 the king of the Israelites right? But it doesn't go directly to the king. It goes to king's messenger. So they kind of have this little UN moment, right? And so 36 and 37, there's three sections in it. Um, and, and it's going to play out like a movie. So try to use your imagination and, and see this if you can see it in the movie. The first section is titled, When God is Mocked. Isaiah 36, 4 and 5. The field commander right, this is from the Assyrians, said to them, right, tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says, on what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have counsel and might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Firstly, the king of Assyria is mocking Hezekiah. Now, you just see it in that first statement that the field commander doesn't even address Hezekiah as king, doesn't even address, acknowledge his kingship, just says, hey, tell Hezekiah what? This is what the great king, right? The great king, the king of Assyria, straight away, condescending language, right? And, and King Ribi, he's mocking Hezekiah. He's like, are you serious? We just took over all of your cities. And you're saying that you're going to go to war with us? Right? One of my favorite board games is the game of Risk. It's, it's about, it's, it's like this. It's kind of like conquering. It's a, it's a very long game. It, it takes a lot of time. Um, but it is one of the greatest board games ever. It's like when you are dominating a board game. Oh, let's use Monopoly. Everyone knows Monopoly better, right? It's like when you're dominating Monopoly. You have every second property, right? And there's this one property that you're like, I want to buy that property. And the one, your opponent has one property. That's all they got. And they're trying to make a deal with you. You're like, come on, man. You got nothing. Even if you gave me everything for that property, mate. It's just ridiculous. And that's what the enemy's saying. That's what the enemy king's saying to Hezekiah. It's like, what, what are you so confident about? What are you basing your confidence on? You're all talk, no substance. That's what the enemy king is saying. Secondly, uh, in, in, in verse 8, Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. He, secondly, he mocks Hezekiah by offering a bargain. But it's one of those bargains that's not really a bargain. He says, I'll give you horses if, if you can put riders on them. Probably very much knowing that they can't, that they don't even have 2,000 riders. You don't even have enough soldiers to ride these horses that I'm offering to you. Just laughing, laughing at Hezekiah. 
Isaiah 18, uh, 36, 18 to 20. Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says the Lord will deliver us. Have the gods of any, uh, of any nations ever delivered their lands from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Seravan? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries have been able to save their lands from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? The mocking continues, and now he uses history. It says, look at, every, look at every other country that we have attacked. They were not saved. They could not be saved. Their gods were not available. How do you think? You think that your God's going to save you? You think your king's going to save you? Look what we've done. We're a steamroller coming through, and you're a little pawn, you know, just completely just looking down on you and starting to even speak the king against his own people. And finally, uh, verse 16 and 17, do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says, make peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat fruit from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Excuse me. Finally, he lays out his final ultimatum to the Israelite people. Don't listen to your king Hezekiah. Don't trust your God. Trust me. If you trust me, I will look after you. I'll take care of you. But if you don't, then I will destroy you. And he puts this ultimatum out to God's people after mocking them, after degrading them, after speaking down upon them. Pretty much says, hey, you guys got nothing. Your God's not going to save you. Your king's not going to save you. Come, I'll look after you. You can trust me. And that's what the enemy king says. So that's part one. Part two is titled, When God is Trusted. Now the message goes from messenger to Hezekiah's messengers back to King Hezekiah. And his response is seen in the first seven verses of Isaiah 37. And he does three things. He responds in three ways, Hezekiah. Number one, he humbles himself. We see that Hezekiah tore his clothes and put on sackcloth. Now, in the Old Testament, when you tore your clothes and put on sackcloth. Now, sackcloth is, uh, it's hard for us to understand what sackcloth is. Uh, The most equivalent, I think, culturally for us, sackcloth is uh, a 25-kilogram bag of rice. If you know what I mean, the yellow one, gold rice. Right, you, you just you have that. You, you know, it's like a garbage bag. But the reason why people in the Old Testament will put that on is because it's a sign of distress and mourning. And that's where Hezekiah was. He acknowledged that it was a day of distress. Verse three: This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. What's the rebuke? What's the disgrace? If you had read through the history of, of Israel in in the time of Isaiah. King Hezekiah was not really the best king. In the beginning of his reign, he actually disobeyed God. He took down God's altars and actually led the people away from God. He was a part of the problem that God's people had put themselves into. It's crazy, but but at this moment where he's got nothing left, he actually looks back. He admits his failure to trust God and declares that what is happening is something that he actually deserves. But he humbles himself to do that. 
It's very difficult to do. That's the first thing that King Hezekiah does. He humbles himself. Secondly, he goes to the house of God. Hezekiah is seen when he hears the news rushing into God's temple. Verse 1 of chapter 37. When King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and went into the temple of God. Now, that doesn't seem like much when you read about it. But if you just take a moment to think about it, in his greatest time of need, he went to get help from where he could. It's as simple as that. Thirdly, he humbled himself. He goes into the house of God and he sought God. Verse 4. This is what Hezekiah says. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of this field commander whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God and that he will rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. This is Hezekiah's prayer, it's his earnest desire that God would have heard the words of the king, of the messenger, of the enemy king, and that God will respond. Now what's amazing about Hezekiah's prayer request is not, he doesn't actually pray for salvation. He's not like, God save me, I'm really stuffed, we're really stuffed here, you know, they've taken up all of our cities, we've really got nothing left, you need to save us. Hezekiah's prayer is not about him. Hezekiah's prayer is actually about God and about his reputation and about his glory. The amazing thing about Hezekiah's prayer is that he didn't make it about himself, but he made it about God. Verse 16 to 20. Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to all the words that Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these people and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord our God, deliver us from his hands so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. That's Hezekiah's prayer. It's not God, save me because we're in a really bad situation. It's God, respond so that they will know who you are. This enemy that that mocks you, that ridicules you, respond for the sake of your name. Respond for the sake of who you are, of your glory. And that's what Hezekiah's desire is. It's not about him. It's about the reputation of his God. So part three of this movie is titled When God Responds. Because King Hezekiah trusted in the Lord and prayed, God moves into action. See, one of the things about the enemy king was that he was so proud of his accomplishments. Look at what I have done. Look at what all these cities I have conquered. Look at all these people that I have captured. Look how awesome I am. And yet we see God's going to respond to all these um these, uh, I don't know what they're, declarations of how good they are. In verse 26, God says this, Have you not heard long ago, I ordained it. In days of old, I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you have turned fortified cities into piles of stone. In the mind of the enemy king, it was his 
great leadership. It was his powerful army. It was his strategic planning that conquered all of these cities. And God comes back and goes, "Mm, no, it was actually me. I'm the one who actually planned this. Now, some of you might be thinking, why would God plan for an enemy city to come and attack his own people? That was part of the judgment. Judgment that God's people had brought upon themselves. But in this moment, what a slap in the face to the enemy king. Right? King Ribi thought he was mocking God by destroying his people. And yet God turns around and goes, Yo, you're only doing that because that's part of my plan. You're playing on my chessboard. You're just a piece of my story, not the other way around. It wasn't you. It wasn't your smarts. It wasn't your power. It's actually part of my plan. And actually, we see this 20 chapters earlier in Isaiah 14, 24 and 25. As I have purpose, so shall it stand that I will break the Assyrian in my land. King Ribi was so high and mighty, thought he was all this and all of that, and yet God puts him back in his place. But not only that, because King Ribi, the enemy king, had raged against God and ridiculed God, God promises Hezekiah that the enemy king will not be able to move further in his siege. Verse 35 uh, to 30, sorry, 33 to 35. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with a shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. Finally, God puts his foot down and draws the line in the sand. And it says, because of your foolish behavior and your arrogance and your pride, I am going to draw this line in the sand and you will not go further. You will not go further. And you know what? What God promises, God will do. And we see this in verse 36, 37. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sarah king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew, returned to Nineveh and stayed there. The end. That's how the movie ends. Right? The enemy king has come through with these massive forces to take over the land. And God says, you know what? I'm done. I'm done with your pride. I'm done with your arrogance. Here is the line in the sand. And what does he do? He sends an angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord just puts to death 185,000. Just like that. It's like a Thanos moment. Right? Some of you are sleeping and now you're awake. Bang, Thanos. Right? Game over. Right, 185,000 die. The enemy king withdraws. That's the end of the battle. But there's an interesting verse right at the end in verse 38. We see that that's not the end of the enemy king. Uh, Verse 38, one day, uh, while he was worshipping, this is talking about the enemy king, while he was worshipping in the temple of his god, Nisroch, his sons, Adam, Melech, and Sharazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazaz
See, it's crazy, right? God draws the line in the sand, 185,000 of Assyrians, the enemy dies, the king withdraws, right? But that's not the end. And you've got to see the irony in this verse. The king is worshipping in the temple of his God, the God that he worshipped, the God that he found protection and provision from. And who is it that comes and kills him in the presence of his God? His own sons. His God did not protect him, even though that's what he was saying to Yahweh, God of Israel. All this pride and arrogance about what he had achieved just comes crashing down when he's killed in the presence of his false God by his own children. It's an amazing story. That's easily, you know, you could make a movie out of that. A lot of time when we do read Isaiah, we read a lot of the stories in the Old Testament. A lot of time we go, great story. What's that got to do with me? Right? And I believe there's three things that we can understand about God and and about ourselves in this that we need to take home. Firstly is this, God is sovereign. The word sovereign means to be in control. Just because there's chaos Well, just because there are things that seem to be getting out of hand does not mean that it is out of the hands of God. It is not out of God's control. Hezekiah could have easily seen that. All the cities in Judah that were fortified were taken over by the enemy. Hezekiah easily could have been like, we are so screwed. Where is God? God, why are you not in control? Why is there so much chaos in this place? And yet, what we see after reading through the whole story, that it was all in God's control. It was all a part of God's plan. And here's the thing. It's the same with our lives. So many times we think there are are times where God does things and when God withdraws or when God is present and that God is absent at, at times. And sometimes we find ourselves in chaotic moments in our lives where things are out of control and you don't know what's going on and you're like, God, where are you? God, why would you let this happen to me? But the reality is what Scripture tells us over and over again is that it is all in the hands of God. God is not just the creator of the universe, but he is the controller of the universe. Can I tell you this, friend? You did not walk into this building because you decided to come. It's all in the plans of God. You're not going through what you're going through right now because you made a good decision or you made a bad decision. It's all in the hands of God. And here's the thing, whether you believe that or not, does nothing to change the biblical reality that it is still God in control. God is not just the creator of the universe. He's the controller of the universe. And even though when we look at our world and sometimes when we look at our lives, sometimes we we go through anxiety, we go through worry, we, we go through fear. One of the reasons is because we do not believe that God is still in control. Actually, we we feel the other way. We feel that God is not in control. And therefore, we have no one to trust. Therefore, we need to trust ourselves. But that's not what God, that's not who God is. God is sovereign. Right? God knows. Right? He knows. You know what? This is the crazy idea, right? God actually knows what's going to happen tomorrow. (coughs) That's how 
astonished I am that I'm coughing, right? God actually knows what is going to happen in your life tomorrow. We do not, right? You can schedule it. You might plan it, right? But you have no control. Here's the crazy part. You and I have no control over what is going to happen tomorrow. And yet God knows exactly what's going to happen tomorrow. So who do you think you should be trusting? God. And yet we don't. Why? It's not, it's not that we don't want to trust God. It's that we don't believe that God is in control. We struggle to believe that. And we struggle to let go of the control in our own lives. You know, there are times where we find ourselves in situations where we don't understand why we're going through what we're going through. Why am I struggling with this? Why am I struggling with this addiction? Why am I struggling with this relationship? When is this ever going to end? It's never going to end. It's chaotic. But can I tell you, just because you don't understand why things are happening in your life or why they're not happening in your life is not the same as God not understanding and God not being in control. You not understanding, that's your problem. But God is still in control. God still knows what's going to happen tomorrow, whether, whatever you feel about it. It's just a question of whether you can trust that or not, whether you believe that or not. And we'll get to that again uh, at the end. Uh, just because we don't understand why God would allow things in our lives uh, does not mean that God is absent. You know, one of the simple things is that when bad things are happening in our lives, where is God? God is not around. You know, it's a very simple um, way of thinking. But can I tell you, it's, it's, the, it's the opposite. Whether good or bad, God is always there. God is always present. It's just whether you believe that or not. Just because you don't understand it doesn't mean that he's not there. And just because you don't understand it doesn't mean... And just because it's out of control in your mind does not mean that it's out of control in his. He's in control. Why? Because he's completely sovereign. So that's the first thing that we need to believe. Secondly is this. You can always turn around to him. Hezekiah in the early parts of his kingship made very poor decisions. Poor decisions that led to the downfall of, uh, the, of God's people and ultimately his own um, kingship. But even then, he comes to a point where he finally recognizes that God is the only one to trust and does the right thing by turning to him. Can I tell you, friends, one of the hardest things to do in life is to recognize the mistakes you've made. One of the hardest things to do in your life is to recognize the mistakes that you have made, to admit to those mistakes and turn around. Whether it's to God um, you know, married people will tell you it's also very difficult in, in marriage as well. Um, you know, for me, it's very easy because I just make so many mistakes. It's just like a daily thing. I, I feel sorry because sometimes my sorry doesn't feel very genuine to my wife because I say it every day. Maybe I should say sorry less. Maybe make it feel better. Anyway. One of the hardest things to do is that we, to recognize the mistakes we've made in our lives against God 
to make it to humble yourself and make a decision to turn around and to go back to God for forgiveness. And the biblical word for this is repentance. Repentance does not mean saying sorry. Repentance does not mean, oh, I've done wrong, I'm very sorry. That the word repentance literally means U-turn. So what it means is, is that when you're sinning and you're walking away from God, repentance is taking a moment to recognize that you've done wrong, saying sorry, and going back the other way, doing the U-turn and going back to God. Can I tell you, when you say sorry to God, but continue to live a life of sin, that's not repentance. That's not repentance. Repentance has to have a change of direction. And the beauty of repentance and our God is this. It doesn't matter how far you've gone down the track. It doesn't matter what you've done in your life. It doesn't matter even now what you're doing in your life. When you choose to turn back to him, God is there. One of the biggest barriers for people to believe in God or to choose Jesus as their Lord and Savior is they cannot believe that God would forgive them of their sin. God can, how can God forgive me of my sin? I have done so much. I have rebelled against God. I have rejected God. I have lived my own way. Trust me, if you knew the things that I've done in my life, you would not forgive me. So why would God forgive me? Can I tell you, the reason is this, is because God is not like us. You and I, when we use the word forgiveness, we have a standard, right? We have a standard of forgiveness. You know, when you and I do something bad, right? And I get, this is the human heart, right? right? This is the human heart. You do something wrong to me, then you've got to make up for it. You've got to really show me that, you know, you, you want to change and, and that you, you've made up, you know, like you've made that decision to come around. You know, you, you, you show me that and then I'll forgive you. You know, I was sharing this morning at our Burr campus, a lot of times our forgiveness is pure to do with our mood. That's how jacked up humans are, right? Our mood determines whether we feel like forgiving someone or not. My kids, right, poor kids, Right? And, and all the parents will, you, you understand this one. My kids can do the same thing on two consecutive days. And on one day, I'll be like, oh, that's cute. And on the other day, it's I'll belt them for doing exactly the same thing. And the only thing that was different was what? My mood. Right? On the first day, I was full. I was well-rested. I had a great day at work and the kid messes up and I go, that's okay, that's cute, move on. Next day, had a bad day at work, you know, trains were running late, get home, bad mood, kid does exactly the same thing, what do I do? I belt him or her, right? How confusing it must be for the kids, right? Like I did the same thing and one day I, I got like sort of giggles and the next day I got belted, right? See, that's how fickle we are as humans. That's how fickle we are in terms of our judgment. You know, uh, 
people don't know this, but I'm actually a, a, a psych major, right? I can read your soul, jokes. <laughs> jokes, jokes, right? But in psychology, one of the subjects that we, we did was a, a subject called consumer behaviour. And it's amazing. It was one of my favourite subjects at university. And um, it's all about how certain things can make people feel a certain way, um, you know, make people do certain things, and that's how marketers get you. Uh, some of the examples are um, the colours red and yellow are, are known to make people feel hungry. Think about it. McDonald's, KFC, Red Rooster, Hungry Jacks. What are all their colours, right? Red and yellow, right? If you as a group, if I wanted to convince you to do something, right, the first thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to feed you. I'm going to make sure you're nice and full, right? Secondly, I'm going to turn up the air conditioning, right? Make you feel nice and cold, right? That messes with your mind. It opens you up to be more persuasive, right? Do you know, this is the, you may or may not know this one. This one's a funny one, right? Do you know why things don't cost $1? but they cost 99 cents because at 99 cents, people buy it. But at a dollar, people don't. That one cent, that one cent makes a difference, right? Have you ever noticed petrol? It's never a dollar 50. It's always a dollar 49, a dollar 40. Oh, sorry. Let's make it consecutive. At the moment, it's a dollar 99. <laughs> it's so expensive, right? It's ridiculous, right? But there are these... There are things in our psyche that depending on the day and the mood, our response is different. Can I tell you, our ability, ability to forgive is determined by all of those things. That's how fickle it is. But this is what makes our God stand apart from us. Because God's standards of forgiveness are not ours. God is not fickle in his standard of forgiveness. His standard is very simple. You turn around, you humble yourself, you admit you've done wrong, and you want to you know, come back to me, done. You're forgiven. doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter how bad you think your life is. God's not like us. So when we say things like, God could never forgive me. It's because people don't understand who God is. He's greater than you. He's greater than the way that we think. And his forgiveness is so much deeper. So that's the second thing that we need to understand, that we can always turn around to him just like Hezekiah did. Thirdly, God, God's the winner. When I first wrote this sermon, the title was When God Wins. And I had a problem with this title because then it kind of sounded like that there are times when God loses. But here's the main point. God doesn't lose. God doesn't lose. We need to be reminded today of that, that God is the winner. Whatever the enemy is, God doesn't lose. Whether it be the enemy of other false gods, idols, addictions, unhealthy habits, physical and mental illness, whatever it is, God is greater than all of that. God is more powerful than all of that and God can beat all of that. Whatever fear is in your life, whatever anxiety is in your life, whatever worry that you have in your life, God's all over that. 
Now, just because God can beat it doesn't mean he will all the time. That's up to God. But that's why we need trust. We need to trust God that whatever God chooses to do, that that's the best for his glory and that's the best for us. And that's what faith is, to believe that. See, one of the things that we forget, and I think, you know, like we we have to remind ourselves, Christianity is not a growing religion. It's not the popular, you know, religion in our day. Actually, it's getting harder and harder to be a Christian in our society. And because we've got all these other things that are becoming bigger and stronger, we sometimes feel like that our God and his power and his presence is actually diminishing in all these things. People talk about the rise of mental illness. And someone said, man, if God was so powerful, why is there a rise in suicide? Why is there a rise in, in, in global warming? Why is there a rise in mental illness? And suddenly we get this idea that the power of God, the greatness of our God is diminishing as we live. But the reality is not that. The reality is, is that our God is greater than anything in this world. That there is nothing in this world that can defeat our God because God is the creator of the world and he's the controller of the world. But the problem is we forget this and we live our lives as if we worship a God that is competitive to the other gods of this world. But that is not the case. We do not worship a God that is comparative to anything in this world. We worship a God that is holy, that is set apart, that is a class of his own. And so when we worship this God, then the things in our lives that are like worries, fears, anxieties, They change because our God is greater. Our God is greater than the situation that you're in. Our God is greater than the addiction that you're in. Our God is greater than the brokenness in your relationships. Our God is greater than your mental illness or your physical illness. Our God is greater. And if you believe that, it changes the way you live your life. But the problem is we don't. The problem is we Don't. We don't live our lives. We don't live our lives as if the God that we worship is the winner. We we live our lives as if God could be the winner. God might be the winner. Right? Tuesday. First Tuesday of November. Right? The race that stops the nation. Right? Three o'clock. I'm pretty sure it's Channel 10. Anyway. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to give you tips, but here's the thing, right? If you knew who was going to win, right? If you knew the horse that was going to win, right? Where would you put your money? Not that I condone gambling, but, you know, some of us are sinful. Don't judge, Right? If you knew the horse that was going to win, you're going to back that horse. No doubt. And you know what? It's the best race to watch because you know that your horse is going to win. Right? There's no anxiety. There's no fear. There's no worry. Why? Because you know your horse is going to win. That's the same with our God. 
If you believe in your heart that at the end of the day, our God, He's the winner. We're on the winning team. That all the things that we're going through in our lives will look will be taken care of by our great God. Then anxiety, fear, uh, worries, we can deal with that. But the problem is, we don't treat God, or we don't. We, we struggle to believe that God is the winner. At best, we hope God is the winner. We hope that this horse is going to win. And so when you watch the race, right, when you're hoping that your horse is going to win, that's <laughs> anxious. You worry. You know, no matter what happens on the field, your, your heart's like pumping. But when you know that you're behind the winner, you sit back, you grab your Sprite Zero, you just enjoy that race. Can I tell you, friends, one of the reasons why you struggle to enjoy the life that God has given you is because you don't believe that God is the winner. You hope that God is the winner. You don't believe that God can defeat all the enemies in this world. You just hope. Big difference. Scripture tells us, this story in Isaiah tells us, That yes, there's chaos in the world. Yes, there are things that may happen in the world, but at the end of the day, God wins. At the end, Thanos, right? 185,000, bang, just like that. Friends, we don't worship a God that might win. We don't worship a God that might be God. No, we worship the true and living God. And if you're going to put it, if you're going to back that, if you're going to back that horse, then you know what you get to do? You get to enjoy life. Because no matter what happens tomorrow, no matter what happens at the end of this year, no matter what happens in your future, you're okay with it because you trust that God has it in His control. What would it mean for you? What would it mean for you tonight to know that God is in control of your life? How would that change your tomorrow? Knowing that God is not just the creator of the universe, but the controller of the universe. How would it, how would it affect your life? Knowing that God is the winner. Not just hoping that God is the winner. Wouldn't it draw you closer to him? Wouldn't you want to trust him even more? Wouldn't it bring you this phenomenal peace in your heart? You know what the answer is? It's yes. Yes, it would. And it would bring so much joy because it doesn't matter what happens in this life. At the end of it, you know God's going to be there because that's what he said. And he's going to look after you because that's what he said. And he's going to have the best for you because that's what he said. And even in times of darkness, even in times of struggle, you're going to trust God. You're going to trust God and say, God, I don't, I don't like what I'm going through right now. But I trust that the reason why I'm going through it is because you are still in control. Friends, our God is not someone that we hope for, but he is the winner. 
There is no one like him. He's holy like no other. And so I pray that you and I would not just hope that God is greater, but to believe that he is and to trust him with your life and your future, to believe that he's in control so that you can submit to him the areas of your life that are not. Let's pray.